Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Our scripture lesson this morning is a very interesting one. I think it's worth your time. So if you turn and follow it, I think you will find uh, the message more interesting. Whether I've got anything to say or not, Jeremiah has a lot. So our text is in Jeremiah chapter 10, reading from the beginning of the chapter and reading down through verse 10. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold, they fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried, because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, O Lord, you're great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They're all senseless and foolish. They're taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. What the craftsmen and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Will you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, that you know how to talk. Somehow help us to where we are able to listen, to hear, and to understand. And we will give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most obvious things about human beings is that they are religious. Now, you may know some people who claim not to be, but let me say quickly, there are exceptions in the course of human history. Because if you talk with anthropologists or with archaeologists, you will find that when they go to study a culture, whether ancient or in the present world, one of the things they look for is evidences of sacrifice, evidences of worship. There are brief periods in history and in cultures and in individual lives. Usually it's people who are relatively untroubled, who can afford to be, as we say, irreligious. But it usually doesn't last too long. 
Right after the Berlin Wall fell, Sam Kamalasin invited me to be a part of a team to go into the Soviet Union. And we found ourselves one day in Moldavia in the office of the Minister of Culture in Kals. That society had gone through 70 years of hostility to religion of every kind and Christianity in particular. We were in the office of the Ministry of Culture and Cults, which was the office that directed the persecution of Christians and that worked for the extermination of religion. So I felt a little unusual being there. As we sat and talked, the Minister of Culture, who was about six foot four and very thin, full of an incredible amount of energy. He was like a volcano waiting to explode, and he had what seemed to me to be a very irritated tone in his voice. He was speaking in Russian, and I could not understand. We had with us three Baptist pastors, two of whom had been in prison because of this office. So the air was tense, and I could sense their apprehension. My apprehension level started up. I was a long way from home and in an alien context. Finally, though, the Ministry of Culture stopped the conversation. In dead earnestness, looked at us and said, You know that every people expresses its soul in its religion. And our government decided to take ours away from us. And so for 70 years, we've literally stared in the very face of the devil himself. And we've come away with our flesh seared. Can't you help us? And I felt the cry of a heart that had lived through a denial of everything religious. But his deep inner being, his inner psyche was crying out for something beyond himself. To be human is to have divinities. There may be gods or there may be spirits. And they're not at all alike. What an amazing spread there is in the deities and the spirits that you find worshipped by people like you and me. So, when a person says to you, I believe in God... It's perfectly fair for you to look back and say, which one? Because the God he may believe in may not at all be the one that you believe in. And the chances are that his God, even if he's a fellow Christian, the concept he has in his mind is different from yours. There's an old anthropological solve that says that two people doing the same thing may not be doing the same thing. There's something that fits in the linguistic area comparable. Two people speaking the same words may not be saying the same thing. I must admit that as I thought of that, I thought one guy says to a girl, I love you, he may be asking for the chance to sleep with her, not to tell her he's ready to covenant with her in an unbreakable covenant of self-sacrificing love. So, two people saying the same words may not be saying the same thing. 
Now, the God of Scripture is a unique God. All that you have to do is read Isaiah, and you will find that Isaiah tells us again and again that God says, I am God alone, and there is no other. There is none like me. And you notice that Jeremiah in our text today picks that up. Now, there's a certain disadvantage for those of us who grew up in a Christian culture, because we may be able to think thoughts that a world around us never thought, and we're totally unaware of how different our thoughts are than some other people. I remember what a shock it was to me when I found that a 12-year-old boy in a Southern Baptist Sunday school could think thoughts that never crossed the mind of Socrates or Plato. No credit to him or to his brilliance. It's just that he lived in a different context, conceptual context. Now, uh, one of the obvious differences between the God of Scripture and the other gods of the world is that uh, he's much more social in nature. In fact, every evidence is he likes company, and he seemed to want lots of it. In fact, he seems to want company with you and with me. He likes companionship. You know, in thinking about this, I ran across something I'd never thought about before. Do you know where the word companion comes from? The com is from the Latin cum, the preposition with. And the P-A-N is from the Latin word panis, which is bread. And so God says, I want to eat bread with you. Now, you know, I'll have to be honest, I never connected that with the Eucharist, with the Lord's Supper. <laughs> But what is the central ceremony of the Christian church? What is the thing that we celebrate together that binds us together? It's the eating of bread and the drinking of the grape juice. And he wants to eat with us. Now, I can walk into your cafeteria and tell who likes each other by who eats with who. And so... That's the way he is. He wants companionship, and he wants to eat with us. Now, this is because the God of Scripture is a personal God. You know, many people never stop to think that most of the gods of human history have not been persons. They have been natural forces of whom people, whom people personify, or spirits, without the things that make you and me personal. You see, uh, persons, if you notice, always come in what I think of as webs of relationships. You know, persons never come alone. In fact, there's never been a person who was alone. When I see one of you, I know there are two more. And if I find those two, I know there are four more. And you see, I'm a great-grandfather. So when you see me, there are five and sixteen and seven. 
You touch me and you've touched them all. You touch one of them and you've touched me. Persons come in webs of relationships. And that's true of our God. Because, you see, he is triunely personal. There is a Father, a Son, and a Spirit. How different that is from the gods of Greece and of Rome when Paul was going around the Mediterranean basin. Because, you see, take the Greek gods, for instance. They were perfect. They had no needs. And since they had no needs, they had no great interest in anybody else. Because they had everything they wanted. So the Greek gods in Paul's day were the religious world's great navel gazers. They just spent their time loving themselves and meditating on themselves. And then you come to the Bible. (laughs) And here's a God who's not turned this way, he's turned that way and is reaching out eternally for everybody he can find. Without exception. So, uh, you see, the biblical God seeks our companionship. Now, it's interesting, he seeks it whether we want it or not. That makes him different from us, doesn't it? You walk into the cafeteria and say, I believe I'll eat with so-and-so, and you walk up and he's not interested in eating with you, and you turn and say, okay, I'll eat alone. And you turn away. He doesn't turn away. He just keeps nagging at you. You see, uh, what's the first scene where you get people involved in the Bible? It's Adam and Eve. And what are they doing? They're trying to hide from God. (laughs) They're trying to avoid him. Is anybody on this campus you try to avoid? Well, that's exactly what they were doing, trying to avoid him. And so what does he do? He comes looking for them. But worse, he calls. Adam, where are you? He wants companionship. Take the story of the Old Testament, Israel. Israel would get weary of the standard of walking with Yahweh, and so they'd say, let's get us a more comfortable God who's not tough on us. And so they turned their backs on Yahweh. So what did he do? Turn his back on them? No, he sent them a prophet (laughs) who sort of screeched at them and said, uh, you're turned in the wrong direction. You need to turn around because he's looking for you. You'll remember that's the supreme thing about Jesus, isn't it? He came from the other world and came to this world. Have you ever thought about what it meant that he took on a human body? You see, God created his universe, his world, cosmos, whatever you want to call it, all. He did it by speaking. He had no connection with it. That chasm between God and his creation is totally uncrossable for us. There is no way up for us. So what did he do? He not only came down, but he said, I want to wed myself to your condition. And he took a body just like yours and a body just like mine. And God wedded himself to us eternally. So when you see God, you will see one who has a form. 
like yours. Because he likes us. And he wants to have companionship with us. Now, uh, very interesting, this kind of God, isn't it? In fact, when we ignore him, and when we just lose ourselves in our own interests and pay no attention to him, he doesn't leave us alone. You remember the story of Moses in the wilderness with his sheep? I tried to think how old was he. Picked how was he, 40? Uh, I'm not in that world anymore, so I don't keep all those dates. But here was a man, think what he had known. He had known position. He had been next to the most powerful man in the world. He had known privilege. He had had servants galore. He had known power. He had commanded armies. And now what's he doing? Off in a wilderness, alone, taking care of dirty, filthy, smelly sheep. No wonder he was lost in himself and self-pity. And suddenly he sees a flame where it isn't supposed to be. And he looks and it's a bush and it's on fire. And he stares and the leaves are still green while they burn. And he turns aside. And a voice speaks and says, Moses, Moses. I always love the fact that in the Old Testament when God speaks, he always calls your name twice. You check it. It's Moses, and if I haven't gotten your attention yet, Moses, and then that story begins. He comes after those of us who are lost in ourselves and tries and does somewhere, sometime, break into our world. Now, it's interesting also that uh, he not only seeks those who are not seeking him, but he seeks those that don't even believe in him and don't want to believe in him. You remember uh, Saul of Tarsus? He said, this Jesus guy, he's a fake. These people that say he was the Messiah are dead wrong. That's blasphemy. They're giving credit to somebody that doesn't belong to have it. And when they say he rose from the dead, that is a lie. They're dangerous. So the thing to do, just exterminate them all. And so he was Saul the exterminator on his way to Damascus to exterminate Christians. And suddenly, and I like that story, at noonday. Do you know how bright it is at noonday in the Middle East? And suddenly there was a light shining on him that made the sun look dark. He knew enough, he fell on his face. And a voice said, Saul, Saul. (laughs) It's hard for you to hurt yourself the way you're hurting yourself. Why do you persecute me? And then, you'll remember, his life has changed. I love the fact (laughs) He's waiting to break into the life of the very person who hates him the most. Because, you see, he's loved and he wants companionship with them. Now, the fact is, 
that he's very unhappy when he can't get it. Uh, you can ask the girl for a date and she turns you down and you can survive that. Who is there among us that's male that hasn't gotten over that one? But God can't get over that. You turn him down and he can't get over it. He's very unhappy because of it. You remember the three parables in Luke 15? The first one about the guy that had a hundred sheep and lost one of them. And so he goes out into the wilderness and seeks until he finds that one lost sheep. It's as if for the moment he forgets all about his 99. And I love the fact that it says he lays him on his shoulders and he carries him back. But when he gets back, do you know what he says? Now, I'm sure that this is hyperbole, but the hyperbole speaks theology. You know, he said, go get the, my friends and go get my neighbors and let's have a celebration. I've found my sheep. And so when God finds you, heaven has a celebration. When God finds anybody, heaven has a celebration. You remember the second story is uh, the one about the woman. She had ten pieces of silver. Now, they must have been unusual pieces of silver, not quarters or silver dollars. Because when she lost one of the ten, she turned the lights on, swept and scoured the house, and finally located it. And when she found it, it was precious enough that she said, go get my friends and go get my neighbors. It's time to celebrate. Now, Jesus, in those parables, is talking about his father. And when he talks about his father, he's talking about himself, because he and his father are one. And then you remember the third story of the prodigal son. Now, in that story, the father doesn't go to seek him, but he stays at home with a broken heart. Could I tell you a story? I was sitting in a board meeting in Chicago, and sitting next to me was a guy who does film. He helped produce Shadowland, you know, the film on the life of C.S. Lewis. He told us about the last scene. I remember when I saw that last scene. Here's C.S. Lewis sitting in a sofa, on a sofa, and sitting next to him is Joy's boy. And next to them is the wardrobe through which you go to get into Narnia. And they're sitting silently when the kid looks up and says, I'd like to see her again. And C.S. Lewis says, slowly, I would too. And then he bursts into paroxysms of sobbing. Paroxysms of sobbing. When I saw that, my first reaction was, that's overdone. 
very unusual for a man to shake, convulsed in sobs like that. Well, we're sitting together, and uh, my friend Ken Curtis says, we've just seen that film in its unedited edition. And he said, let me tell you a story about the last scene. He said, you know, we tried to do that several times, and we were never satisfied. We tried one morning, and it just didn't work. So we said, let's quit. Let's leave. Let's come back at 4 o'clock this afternoon and see if we can do it. He said, we came back at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, ran through it, and everybody said, this is it. Now, he said, the guy who was playing C.S. Lewis's part turned to me and said, Ken, how was it? Ken said, I don't know. I wasn't here. And his friend said, what do you mean you weren't here? You're standing right there. Through the whole thing? He said, well, you don't understand. Six weeks ago, I buried my father. And I was reliving the loss of my father. So Ken turned to the actor and said, how do you think it went? And the actor said, I don't know. I wasn't here either. Ken said, what do you mean you weren't here? You're the one who acted it. Well, he said, you see, I have a son who got into drugs. And for months when I'd finish acting, I'd go down into Soho and look for my boy. And I never found him. But two months ago, the police called me. And said, come, we think we found your boy. And I had to go identify my boy. And it was the first time I had wept this afternoon since I identified my boy's body. Now God gets, he's just unhappy when he can't have companionship with you. That's the God of Scripture. It runs all the way through. You hear it in Jesus crying, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Thou that killest the prophets, how often would I have gathered you to myself, but you would not. And so John says about him, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, he likes our companionship, but I want to tell you something else about him. He likes to talk. <laughs> he is, of all things, the talking God. Now, that's quite different from the one Jeremiah tells about, isn't it? Because you see, Jeremiah tells about the guy who goes out in the wood and gets a tree, cuts it to a creek, cuts it down, takes part of it, and then he takes his tools and carves on it until he's got a figure. He gives his God, his God's form. You know, that's what most of us do. We give our God the form that he has. And then 
we're idolaters. We don't have the real one. So when he's given him form, a god's supposed to be of value and worth, isn't he? So then he covers him with gold and with silver. And a god is supposed to be a source of security. So he nails him to a platform with hammer and nails, Jeremiah said. And when he's got him secured, the platform he's put him on is one that he can carry because God has to be available, has to be movable. So he makes him so he can move him around and carry him with him. But then he says, but he can't talk. Wouldn't you hate to worship a God who couldn't talk? Well, most people in the world do. But the God that we worship is the one who says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it's interesting the Scripture labors this. Because what's the first thing you get in the Bible before a human appears? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, he spoke, the Hebrew, Vayomer, and he said, and he spoke. And what happened? The key word in the book of Genesis could be, and he said, because everything significant in the book of Genesis comes when God speaks. And when uh, Israel turns its back on God, you will remember he sends those prophets who said, hear the word of the Lord. And you come to the last book in the Bible, you come to a revelation. And you will remember the last thing is, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit of God and His Church have looked at a world and said, come. Anyone who will, let him come. Let him come and take of the water of life freely. So the last thing you've got is God calling. Come, come. Come for companionship. Now it's interesting that all through history in between those, you get him speaking. David said, or the psalmist said, the heavens keep telling the glory of God. And the firmament shows, shows forth, declares his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night knowledge. There is no place where his voice is not heard. History itself. uh, Did you know you can't understand the New York Times today unless you believe, know about two people that you can't prove ever existed? I've been very interested in this ossuary, you know, that's supposed to have had the bones of James, the brother of Jesus, in it. And the debate as to whether it's authentic or not, it's interesting, it's not the ossuary for Jesus. But uh, no way that you can prove definitively 
that that was for the bones of our Jesus' brother. And you know the interest in that also area is that if it's true, it's the first time the name of Jesus of Nazareth occurs in the literature or in, in, in human history. And of course, Moses, how are you going to prove whether he existed or not? But not a way in the world you can understand what's on the front page of the New York Times today. How are you going to keep Israel out of it? And how are you going to explain that apart from Moses? So I love the fact that God doesn't prove his existence. He leaves it to you to conclude. And so we live by faith, not by knowledge. But you see, when we live by faith, we open ourselves. And when we get open, there's a chance we can hear. And there's a chance we can receive. Now, wonderful thing is that when God speaks, there's always a potential for creation. You notice in the uh, Genesis story, when he spoke, the heavens and the earth just popped into existence. He said, let there be, and there was. And whenever he speaks, there's always that potential for creation. When God speaks, there is a potential for something creative always. What a tragedy when we can't hear. Or what a tragedy when we hear and we don't pay any attention. Now that's all my introduction. I'm where I wanted to get at the beginning. Uh, now we know about God, that he's a personal God who wants companionship, and he wants conversation. Did you know that the only form of conversation that God has never known is soliloquy? He's never talked to himself, because there are always two more present. It's always conversation. And he wants you and me. In that conversation. Now why do we miss it? Now here's where I want to my close for this morning. And we'll come back to this on Wednesday morning. God has a problem with our language. Because you remember I said two people saying the same words may not be saying the same thing. When he speaks to us, he has to speak in our language. But did you know there are no words in our language that mean what he wants to say? So the interesting thing in the history of the church is it may be the greatest intellectual story in the history of the human race. God wants to convert sinners. But do you know he has to convert words to be able to convey to you what he means when he talks? 
For more information, contact Cricket Albertson at cricket.albertson at francisasburysociety.com.